Matthew 23, 8-12. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and, and you are all students. And call no one your father on earth, for you have one father, the one in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be servant. All who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. The word of the Lord. Of the Lord. Almost like your grandfather was a minister, which he was. By the way, Spencer and the rest of the confirmation class, as uh, we're, we're resurrecting our vision this year and the practice, as we did have done for many years, had to interrupt it during COVID, of having uh, the kids in the confirmation class, our eighth graders, contribute to each communion Sunday service. Once a month, the first Sunday of the month, uh, one or more of our confirmation kids will be ushering, handing out bulletins, or reading or contributing to the service and leading it in some way. So all the kids handed out bulletins and are ushering today, and Spencer was our reader. He, he uh, volunteered. So that's amazing. Miracles. Yay. Our second reading this morning is from the Old Testament, so we're going in reverse chronological order. This is from the book of Joshua the third chapter, beginning with the seventh verse. This is that moment when the people of Israel crosses the Jordan into the promised land. And as I read this text, look for, listen for echoes of the parting of the Red Sea. Listen for echoes even of the creation story. And certainly, uh, building on what Laura said in her excellent presentation, uh, echoes of baptism as we move through the waters of death into new life. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. The Lord said to Joshua, this day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel so that they may know that I will be with you as I was with Moses. You are the one who shall command the priests, who shall bear the Ark of the Covenant, When you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan River, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Joshua then said to the Israelites, Draw near and hear the words of the Lord your God. Joshua said, By this you shall know that among you is the living God. So now select twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. When the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, Rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan flowing from above shall be cut off. They shall stand in a single heap. When the people set out from their tents to cross over the Jordan, the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant were in front of the people. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. So when those who bore the Ark had come to the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water, The waters flowing from above stood still, rising up in a single heap far off at Adam, the city that is beside beside Zarethan, while those flowing towards the Sea of Arabah, the Dead Sea, were wholly cut off. Then the people crossed over opposite Jericho. 
While all Israel were crossing over on dry ground, the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan until the entire nation finished crossing over the Jordan River. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. May the meditations of our hearts together upon your message to us, your word to us today, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I've begun our uh, bulletin this morning at the very top underneath our stewardship theme and awesome logo with the quote from the late... Rachel Held Evans tragically died in her 30s. This really thoughtful, profound writer, um, uh, church person, person of great faith, critic and lover of the church, uh, really amazing person. And a quote that really has always stuck out with me is a quote that I used today, which um, the second part of which says, the great struggle of the Christian life is to take God's name for our own, to believe we are beloved, and to believe that is enough. I can't think of a better stewardship sentence than that. The great struggle of the Christian life is to believe that we are loved and that that is enough. How do we do that? It's hard. Um, How do we do that when every other voice we hear, when every other message we get from the world and sometimes from ourselves tells us it's not enough. You need more. We operate most of the time from a perspective of scarcity or fear of scarcity. How do we go forward trusting and believing that God's love for us is enough and that that love will provide? I think the first step is to slow down. I think that's always been hard for people, but it's especially hard today for us in this postmodern world in which we live to slow down. That's one thing worship is. It's intentional slowing down, putting on the brakes. Um, And even then, the need to get going and to get on to the next thing is in this room right now. Who here is feeling stressed about it? There you go. Yeah, it's real. I get it. I see you walk out during the final hymn. I see it. I understand. I can't. I'm getting paid to be here, but I get it. I heard a story about a little village in France where the mayor wanted to discourage speeding through the town's main intersection. It only had one light that people blew through that light, those fast French drivers. And the mayor tried to figure out what to do about this. And after discussing the issue with local officials, they settled on a very interesting solution. They had road workers paint a series of crisscrossed white road lines at the main intersection. There were no more clear lane markings, no more lines to mark where cars should stop, just a series of wavy lines that resembled the abstract, uh, an abstract drawing of the ocean. And since people didn't know where they, exactly where they were to go, they had to slow down. And the purpose of the crisscross lines, according to the mayor, was to make it difficult to read the landscape. In other words, in order to deliberately confuse drivers in hopes of them proceeding more carefully and cautiously. 
you could say that's what worship is. We come back in here to recognize the fact that lines are blurry. Things aren't so cut and dried as we like to think they are. There's something bigger going on here than our agenda, our needs, our plans, our itinerary, our schedules. You want to see a new direction in your life? You want to get to your promised land? Start by slowing down, pausing, listening, praying, discerning. Read the tea leaves. Test the wind. Toss the grass up in the air a little bit. Pray. Talk, but don't necessarily order like, a, like you're at McDonald's from God. Unburden yourself, but also listen. Slow down. And I think when you do, you're going to discover you are beloved. And that that is enough. If there ever were people who needed to hear that message, it was God's people who'd been wandering around in the wilderness, the desert, for 40 years. Was it exactly 40 years? I don't know. We believe, the biblical nerds, that 40 years, 40 days, and 40 nights really just was a way of saying a long time. What's a phrase we have for that? A month of Sundays, sort of as an old-fashioned, right? A long time they were out there. You know the old joke about why it took the people of Israel 40 years to get through the wilderness, the men wouldn't ask for directions, right? Really, it was because the people were people, right? They grumbled. They stopped trusting their leaders. They stopped trusting the God who inspired and called and equipped their leaders. They started longing for the flesh pots of Egypt. They, liked, they were thinking, slavery is better than this. This is uncertain. This is hard. I don't like this. I want to go back. And so they had some, you know, some wandering time that had to happen. But at this point now, the generation that had disobeyed God, grumbled against God, gone through all these ups and downs, faithful and not so faithful, that generation had died off. And here today in this text from Joshua, the Lord is ready to fulfill the promise to the people of God, the people of Israel, by leading them into Canaan, the promised land. They are almost where they want to be. Have you ever been there? Almost where you want to be. Just if I can just get that one more interview, my foot in the door, if I can just get that message from the doctor, I'll know I'll be in a better place. It's exciting on the cusp of the change for the better. You can see it. Like they could see across the River Jordan into that land that was promised to be flowing with milk and honey, but they don't know how to get there. There is a big raging river in front of them. I'm from Washington State. My family's from Washington State. The Columbia River, really amazing, incredible river. It looks like a giant lake, it, but once you get in it, it moves you fast. But it's been dammed up by the Grand Coulee Dam for what, 70, 80 years? Forget exactly. I once saw a color film, one of the earth, earliest color films of the Columbia River before it was dammed up. That was a river. Right, that was rapids. That was it was a, a most amazing, awesome thing I'd ever seen. This was, or if you ever been in a, you ever, ever heard the phrase? This is New Jersey. You might not know the phrase gully washer. Right, that's a flash flood, and that's what's coming in the River Jordan during the time of the harvest, when the people are supposed to cross that river. It is not a propitious time to ford the stream. 
it is dangerous. But they can see the promised land over there. The anticipation is almost painful. It is painful. Have you ever been there? Just almost there? I love the line from one of my favorite movies, Jerry Maguire, where Renee Zellweger, before she had her plastic surgery, is saying to her sister, not knowing that Jerry is listening, how much she loves him. She's confessing her love for this guy. And she says, and he's, a, he's at the bottom of the barrel. He's, his life is falling apart, and she's falling for him. And she says to her sister, not knowing he can hear her, I love him for the man he wants to be, and I love him for the man he almost is. Right? Think about that as parents. Ah, oh, if they just, mm, they just would study a little bit more. Oh, you know, if they could just, you know. Ugh. Most of us, most of the time, see where we want to go, where we want the ones we love to go. We have a hunch how to get there, or we're sure we think how to, how, we know how to get there, but we're not able to take that first step. So we, a lot of us live life kind of at that almost is point. Filled with anticipation, but frustration that we don't take that next step. Deeper devotion, deeper commitment, deeper fulfillment, deeper happiness. That, friends, is what stewardship in its message, its call, its challenge, and its reassurance are all about. Is Joshua ready to take on this task of leading the people, taking the baton from Moses? Nope. Is any of us ready? Nope. Ready to take on that kind of responsibility? No. To go deeper, to be happier, to be more at peace? Are we ready? Have we deserved? Do we deserve it? Have we earned it? Probably not. Are we really ready, any of us, to do what in our heart of hearts we know we have to do to get to that place where we know we need to be? There is an exercise bicycle and a weight set down in my basement. I never go down there. I don't know why. You know, if we wait till we're fully prepared to do anything of any that means anything, we'll never, we'll never do it. We'll wait forever. We like to have it all figured out first, to think that we're the author of our uh, entrance into the promised land. I love this story by a, a little saying, um, a cartoon that a, a Reverend David Glockley I read about shared. The little cartoon is very simple. It's a picture of a man with his head bowed in prayer, his hands folded, but the little caption says, God, can you help me but sort of make it look like I did it myself? That's most of us, most of the time. Joshua had nothing to offer God. He's not trained or equipped. He didn't go to seminary or anything except for unwavering devotion and trust. And so when he receives his instructions from the Lord God, the first thing Joshua says to the rest of the Israelites was, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you are going to know that the living God is among you. The way you know God is with you is to take that risky step, that step, that next step, the step most of us don't want to take. Remember, generations of Israelites had been wandering in the desert, and before that, for 400 years, Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And while they were slaves in Egypt, in the course of human history, another kind of God, not a God of a pantheon of gods where each God had his or her own 
sort of you know, assigned task, whether it's fertility or war or whatever it might be, here is this unknown, unnamed God who not only um, listened to our prayers and our petitions, but also reached back out to us, a God who wants to be in relationship with us. That was it's not only monotheism that Judaism introduced, it's also relational theism, a God who loves us and who needs to be loved by us in any relationship. This day I will begin to exalt you so that they may know that I will be with you, God says to Joshua. And then Joshua says, and this day you're going to find out, you're going to see how God is with us. And so the priests, one from each tribe, start wading in the water, this crazy flooding over the banks river. They step into the water carrying the Ark of the Covenant, kind of a precious cargo. They take that doozy of a first step. I love Leonard Skinner. I love the song, Give Me Three Steps. You know that song? Give me three steps. Just give me three steps, mister. Give me three steps toward the door, and I'll get out of here. We need three steps, too. And those three steps are in this text today, if we take a look. First step, after we slowed down, got a lay of the land, tested the tea leaves, prayed, discerned, listened, is to trust the promise. Trust the one who makes the promise to us, who loves us enough to promise us. The promise of God is a consistent theme in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. I am with you. I am with you. One of my most treasured books is a book called Tattoos on the Heart that was given to me by our former associate pastor, Lauren Scharstein. It's about a guy named Father Greg Boyle in Los Angeles, a Roman Catholic priest, great first name, who works with gang members in Los Angeles. And Father Boyle tells a story of walking through the projects, as he calls them, uh, and he came upon a team called Mario. Father Boyle sat down on the porch next to Mario and asked how he was doing. Mario said, Father, it's funny you should walk up to me right now. Uh, Father Boyle asked why. And Mario said, well, I was just sitting here thinking and praying, and I asked God to show me a sign that God is as great and as loving as you say he is, Father. And then you showed up. God showed up for Mario. They had a chance to talk. God always shows up for the Israelites, for us, for the people of God, the Israelites. God showed up in the leadership of Joshua at just the right time. And in the priests who were carrying that ark, they were visible, active proof of God's presence. Who are the people in your life who are visible proof of God's presence? The promise being kept. person who cared about you, who took the time to see the best in you, who sat with you, didn't try to solve your problem, just was with you, the person who challenged you when you needed to be challenged, comforted you when you were inconsolable, someone who strengthened you at just the right time. I will be with you. That's the first step to trust that promise. Second step is to look for reassurance, because I promise you'll find it. That's, by the way, what the sacraments are in the Presbyterian Church. You know that in our tradition, baptism doesn't do anything. 
The baptism, the ceremony, the act, doesn't get God to love you anymore or your child than God already does, right? We are recognizing, giving thanks for that. What, what baptism does, what the Lord's Supper does, we say, is it seals the promise, the sacrament. It reassures us that the promise still belongs to us, even after we've been baptized, even since the last time we took communion. The second step is to look for reassurance that the promise still belongs to you because it does. I am going ahead of you, God says to Joshua and the people. If I call you, I will provide for you whatever you're going to need. And here's the thing. Nothing you encounter on your journey will surprise me. And nothing will shake me from loving you. Finally, the third step is to know that God in Christ has gone ahead of us and experienced everything that you and I could ever experience. If you know that a person who loves you and will never let you fall, not only has promised to be with you, but has gone before you and is now reaching out and saying, come with me, it makes it a lot easier to go, doesn't it? To step into the water, no matter how deep it might be, how big the waves might be, whatever trouble might lie ahead, the risk that it takes to deepen one's devotion, one's commitment, to eventually get to that promised land of a payoff of a deeper sense of peace and purpose, to let go of settled certainties about how things should be, how I apportion what is important to me in my life. The direction from God that challenges and empowers us is trust me, step out in faith, and go. Do it. We had a young man in our church, a beloved young man who also grew up in this church, who just recently had a skydiving accident. So we're so grateful he's alive. I need to talk to him about why he's skydiving in the first place. As my father, the career pilot, says, why would anybody jump out of a perfectly good airplane? But you have to have a certain kind of trust. Take that step, but the step is everything. Again, echoes in this story of the Red Sea. It's a less, less familiar story, this crossing of the Jordan into the promised land that Joshua leads, but it is told so that it reminds the reader of the people of Israel moving from slavery to freedom through the Red Sea when those waters parted and how we move through the waters of death and baptism and into new life. First part of the quote from Rachel Held Evans in your bulletin this morning tells us and reassures us that these three steps we take are make all the difference. She said, and she said it not long before she passed away tragically and sadly of cancer, we could not become like God, so God became like us. God showed us how to heal instead of kill, how to mend instead of destroy, how to love instead of hate, how to live instead of always long for more. When we nailed God to a tree, God forgave. And when we buried God in the ground, God gave up. Trust the promise. Look for reassurance. And then know that when you take that step, you're not alone. Amen.